Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. If you're a pro, you know that this is not efficient because you know there's a better way. There's also a better way to save. When pro customers buy building supplies in bulk at Lowe's, they save up to 20% every day. Buy in bulk and save up to 20% on concrete, gypsum, and gypsum accessories. At Lowe's, buy more, save more. Visit the Pro Desk or Lowe'sForPros.com for details. Discount applies to contractor pack items. Minimum purchase required, U.S. only. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. Well, we're so excited to have Steve Shepard from Politico today joining us. He covers polls for Politico, which is the must-read newspaper and website here in town and for anyone who follows politics. So, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background. I know you cover polling for Politico. You cover other things, and you've been covering polling now for a while. Just give us a little bit of backstory. Sure thing. Uh, I started at... Um, the hotline, which used to be uh, uh, part of National Journal, it still is. And um, I started there in 2008. And then in early 2009, uh, the person who had covered polls there and and, uh, was in charge of basically aggregating all the day's election polls, um, that person left to go join a polling firm and and actually be a practitioner. And uh, I was asked by my uh, then boss, Amy Walter, uh, who's now at the Political Report, um, if it would be an, a beat that I would want to take over. And, uh, you know, I had I was a poli-sci major in college, and I had taken statistics classes, uh, but it wasn't something really that I uh, had given a lot of thought to. Um, but I dove into this new beat in 2009 uh, and covered polling at the hotline through the 2012 election. Uh, eventually, that, that started just from aggregating all the day's polls to starting to analyze them, to starting to think about broader things going on in the polling industry. And in 2012, uh, I went to my first APOR conference as someone who's who's a, a layman, a, a journalist, not uh, a professional pollster. Uh, and, and over the years, learned a ton about the scientific theory behind it, learned a ton about the challenges the industry is facing, um, learned a ton about how to interpret results from a political point of view, uh, learned a ton about the non-political work that you can do with survey research, and uh, and and really had a blast with that. Um, I remember seeing you down at APOR in 2012. That's right. That was the one down in Orlando. That was. Um, that was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was sort of, uh, I, I ended up writing a lot of big stories for National Journal Magazine about uh, the challenges facing the polling industry and what that means for people who depend on survey research, both in obviously being national journal, but both, both in government and in politics. Uh, eventually, I ended up in charge of the hotline uh, in 
2013 and, and into early 2014 when Politico came calling and, and was starting basically a competitor to Hotline. They called Campaign Pro uh, and uh, was recruited to come on over here and, and, and start that up, uh, which I did and, and ran through the, the 2014 midterm elections, but always sort of kept an eye on what was going on uh, and wrote from time to time about what was going on in the polling industry. I went also to APOR in 2014 um, and, and, and covered some of the things like the, the Gallup review, post-2012 review uh, there, even though I was really, you know, in charge of running this subscription uh, service about uh, down-ballot House, Senate, governor, uh, gubernatorial elections. Um, and then move, pivoting to 2016, the thought, the thought in the newsroom here, and, and it was something I was very excited about, was I have all this experience. Uh, polls are such a big part, particularly looking in 2015 when they were determining which Republican candidates Americans were going to see on debate stages. Uh, polls were such a big part of this presidential campaign that really I should go and, and, and expand that part of my portfolio, and, and that's what I've been doing here and covering uh, – both trends in public opinion and, uh, and and hope to cover also how changes in the polling industry affect how we're going to view this uh, really unique election. Great. And so folks who, by the way, want to review some history of National Journal or the hotline, they should go back and listen to our interviews with Chuck Todd and Charlie Cook, where we spent a lot of time talking about both those uh, Washington landmarks, I guess, or landmark institutions. Uh, so I want to ask about, you know, you talked about how you've been covering this for a while and how the polling industry has changed a ton. And we've done a lot of coverage on the show about the changes uh, that are affecting the industry. I'm interested in your take on the changes in how reporters use polling. Um, I mean, I know polling has always been something that reporters have relied on a lot, um, you know, in sort of describing uh, what voters are thinking about elections. It's always been an important tool. But it feels like there's an even greater appetite for polling out there these days. And that's why you see such an enormous volume of polls coming out of, say, Iowa right before the caucuses or New Hampshire right before the primaries. Am I going crazy or does it, is it, does it really seem like there is a bigger, more voracious appetite for polling these days on the part of reporters? I think in general, there's just so much interest in this presidential campaign that everything is magnified. You know, we're getting uh, on the, the digital side, we're getting record uh, uh, readership on the cable television side for these debates and for these election nights and for these uh, town halls that the, the uh, cable networks have uh, manufactured to try to uh, dry, uh, take advantage of all this interest you're seeing just so much uh, so much interest out there in the election. Um, I do think there is, I, I, I think this is kind of cuts both ways. I think in some ways the reliance on polls to inform horse race journalism can be a little, a little lazy. People use it as shorthand uh, to reporting, to talking to the campaigns, to, to, to thinking about what's actually going on on the ground. Uh, but on the other side, I think it's actually part of it is encouraging. Part of it speaks to, I think, a uh, a press corps that is more conversant with the ideas and and theoretical underpinnings of of uh, polling and survey research. Um, you know, you have outlets now. Look, uh, for example, Nate Silver was 
blogging in 2007 for Daily Coast anonymously because people in the media didn't understand what the polls were really saying, uh, didn't understand what it meant when one network's polls say this and another network's polls differ. Uh, he was trying to tie all that together. Now you have numerous places you can go. You have reporters and, and analysts at various news outlets who can thread all this together, who can explain it and give it context uh, that you didn't have before. Um, so I, I, part of it, like I said, part of it I think is an over-reliance on horse race journalism at times. And look, we're Politico. That's, that's part of, a part of what we do. Um, but the other part, I think, is, is encouraging. Uh, I, I think there are a lot more people who know what they're talking about now and can explain it to readers, and, and, and you have then a, a more sophisticated readership. Do you find that um, campaigns, I mean, because you have experience not just looking at horse race polling, but also down ballot polling, probably a lot of internal polls that people show you maybe on background, if not for a story. How do you decide whether or not a poll is a good poll or a bad poll? It's not so easy. A lot of times folks looking at polls nationally say, oh, well, this has a low margin of error. This has a high sample size. This has a low sample size. There's obviously, we all know a lot more to it. How, how do you look at that and make those judgments? Well, the first thing is, um, you know, we I certainly try not to be overly judgmental and say this is definitely a gold standard poll and this is, uh, you know, garbage. Um, I, I think what, what you look at are a number of different factors. Um, for me, track record is important. Uh, I look for a pollster not just who has a track record of accuracy, but who has a track record of transparency. Um, I almost like sometimes when a pollster gets something wrong and then goes back and thinks about, hey, you know, maybe we missed, we didn't have enough young voters, or, or maybe we, we called at the wrong time of day and we missed people who work at night. Um, you know, I, I, I like pollsters who think about their methods and are open and transparent about that process. Uh, certainly, um, the size and scope of the sampling frame in a, in a poll is something I look at. This day and age, when nearly half of adult Americans live in households without, uh, where we're, they only have a cell phone, uh, polls that certainly that call either all landlines or mostly landlines. Um, obviously, when you're talking about Republican primaries, which is where the bulk of the interest is at this stage of the campaign, uh, that you, you, you have a number, you know, the, the cell phone only can, uh, cohort of that universe is much smaller. But in general, uh, polls that, that attempt to interview as many people as possible, not in sample size, but in, but in sampling frame, it, uh, you know, try to get if you call landlines and cell phones, you can get 97 percent of the adult population. If you call if you, if you do a good job on if you're using using uh, registration based sampling and you're using voter lists and you're calling landlines and cell phones and in certain states, if you're calling with bilingual interviewers, these are things I look at um, really closely to see to determine whether whether a poll is good or not and look that poll may end up being less accurate in the end uh because of other factors because of margin of error because of of random errors um but i i want the polls that, that we use and that we write about and that we trust to be the ones that that, that are the most comprehensive i want to get your take then on whether or not you think that the polls are 
broken, just broadly. I mean, this is something we talk about on the show a lot, is that we feel like nowadays, every time one of these primaries happens, there's like a contingent out there that's kind of like secretly hoping the polls are wrong. So they can be like, ha look at those terrible pollsters. Um, but that while there have been a handful of pretty high profile, pretty serious misses, say Michigan on the Democratic side, um, that the polls have not been so bad. Maybe that's a really low bar, but the polls have not been so bad so far in the primary season. Um, what's your take? I mean, do you think that the polling industry is in crisis or are you more optimistic than that? I, to, for me, the crisis is almost one uh, is almost more of cost than anything else. You know, um, you have this confluence of things that are happening at the same time, uh, which which has been unfortunate, I think, for public polling. You have the, the cost of polls increasing, uh, and, and perhaps this will slow. But over the past 15 years or so, increasing to such a degree as Americans move away from landline phones and onto cell phones. Um, at the same time, because of changes in, similarly, changes in technology for the most part, but also in the way Americans consume their news, uh, newsroom budgets, both television, print, uh, digital, are for the most part, with, with the exception of, at least in politics, with the exception of the sort of quadrennial spike that you're seeing this year, uh, those newsroom budgets have been declining. Um, those two factors combined, when you consider that news media were the, are the uh, primary sponsors of political polling, uh, nonpartisan, objective political polling, uh, combined with the fact that polls are getting more expensive, I, I, I think has been damaging. Um, I, now, I don't think that the process is broken, per se. I think... Uh, I'm, I'm encouraged with a lot of, you know, I've been to a couple of APOR conferences planning to go again this year, uh, which is exciting for me. And I'm always encouraged by seeing people sort of think about, A, what we're doing now, and B, what, what kind of new methods they can do moving forward to try to account for some of these things. Uh, I, and I think there's a lot of innovation out there. And a lot of those sort of new approaches are exciting. I think we're in a kind of a middle ground on between phones and online. Uh, that is a little uncomfortable sometimes, but I don't know that either one is fundamentally broken at this point that, that I wouldn't, uh, that I'm willing to, to sort of throw up my hands and say, well, we can't trust any way of gauging what, what public opinion is. Well, if you're going to be in Austin for APOR, you've got to join me on the recreating Margie's college experience bar crawl that I'm going to be hosting. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh... <laughs> Let me know what your t-shirt size is. I would consult is. a lawyer first. Already. <laughs> <laughs> I would consult a lawyer and a nutritionist and a wellness expert before embarking on that. <laughs> um, uh, so um, do you feel like there's been any surprises in polling this, uh, you know, 2016 so far or underwritten stories about, you know, that, that you know, only folks who are really digging through the data can really pick up on? That's a great question. Uh, obviously, the, the, the biggest surprise was obviously in Michigan where, um, you know, it, it was clear that uh, that the polls significantly understated Bernie Sanders' appeal. I think part of it is, uh, you know, it, it's sort of been interesting to watch this race move from states. You mentioned at the beginning where in Iowa and New Hampshire, we had this huge surge of polls. And then it's been interesting to watch the race move to states where there's, you know, there are fewer polls. There's less data available. Um, 
you know, New York is certainly a case where we have another huge influx of polls. There are a number of, for example, uh, media outlets and academic institutions in and around the New York area that spend a lot of time polling New York uh, that, that are going to provide that have already provided us with so much data this week and are going to continue to do so uh, as we head a lot closer to the to the primary in the 19th. But I, it's always been interesting to see what what happens in states where we don't have data, um, including in, in some primary states. You know, in Arizona, there were very few polls, for example. That's a pretty big primary state uh, as far as just the, the size of the electorate. Um, you know, I guess it gets down to this sort of reliance on the polls and, and the, the desire that we have. You mentioned that there's a lot more interest in polls. I think there's a lot of interest in prediction right now. Um, you know, I, I, there are news outlets that are dedicated to the idea trying to predict what is going to happen based on polls, based on uh, other fundamentals, based on the number of endorsements that candidates have. And all of that is, is useful, but ultimately, uh, you know, I do enjoy the, the suspense of this. And I, and I think uh, sometimes the, you know, the elections are, uh, it, it, it isn't that much fun if we know what's going to happen going into that night. And um, I, I guess I just, I, I appreciate both, being able to tell things about what's going on in the electorate to leading up to an election and, and figuring out why voters are behaving a certain way, which voters are, are, are siphoning off to which candidates and, and why they appeal to them, but also having uh, the idea of the candidate's campaign without voters necessarily getting those cues from the media that this candidate is winning and this candidate is losing, but rather that it is wide open. Um, and so comparisons of, of, of those kinds of contests, I think, you know, we're going to see that for example, in Indiana coming up, I think, you know, I know that uh, that there will be one or two polls in Indiana, but by and large, we're going to have a lot of attention on Indiana on May 3rd, and we're not going to have a lot of data, especially compared to New York or Pennsylvania in the weeks leading up to that. We are in a polling desert indeed in some of these states. We've complained about that before on this show. Um, but when you talk about really being interested in prediction, I have this theory that folks who are in the polling business, um, I I've noticed whether it's, I mean, I, I'm interested in weather stuff. You and Harry Enten are far more uh, interested in it and experienced it. I mean, do you think there is just something uh, that makes certain people like predictive science and whether that's forecasting weather or forecasting elections? I Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a predictive nature to it. I think there's also an explanatory nature to it. Um, you know, the dynamics behind, for example, whether the dynamics behind, let's say, there's a hurricane barreling toward the coast, the dynamics behind what makes that hurricane strengthen, warm ocean temperatures, for example, or or favorable upper-level winds versus wind shear that would make it weaken, um, and eyewall replacement cycles and things that would make it weaken, those things are really interesting to me. Um, and I think that's the same way with, with politics. The, you know, I'm less interested, I think, in who's going to win New York, though I am certainly, you know, fascinated by how Donald Trump will do, and particularly as a native New Yorker, how Donald Trump will do in some areas of the state uh, versus other areas of the state. But I'm more interested in why voters uh, there, why he appeals to voters there in a way that he didn't in Wisconsin, for example. Right. He's going to probably, you know, nearly double his vote share in New York, still with the same three candidates in the race as he, as he did in Wisconsin. Uh, versus Ted Cruz, who's going to go from probably, you know, uh, in the 40s in, in, in Wisconsin to uh, 
lucky to crack, say, 20 or 22 percent in New York. Uh, the dynamics behind that are really interesting to me, I think, in the same way that, uh, you know, weather forecasting is also another way of explaining what is happening or what's about to happen. Yeah, I mean, there is a data guru on the Democratic side who I think is now sort of semi-retired, but he, he followed baseball, which is kind of another data set, right, and uh, soap opera characters just because I think he needed more stuff to – Analyze, you know, he just, you know, he just needed like an endless amount of stuff to. So it was not like he sat and watched soap operas. He just memorized like who had been on what show for how long and then where they go to. Now that's not predictive, but that's just like I need data. I just need like massive amount, <laughs> a massive amount of data, and that's that's one way to get there. That's um, way more offbeat than baseball stuff, <laughs> right? Right. That's right. He's just, you know, he just wanted to consume it all. So, all right. So if you're a native New Yorker, then let me ask you this question: Which you think? Which food, New York foods, political moments do you, I guess, find the most, I don't know, either annoying or, you know, helpful, right? So that's Cruz and the matzah. Doesn't Trump eat pizza with a fork and knife, right? Isn't that one? And uh, and Kasich at the deli, <laughs> eating everything in a deli. So I may, I may be missing some, but what do you think of – or I guess you could add in that the, the Sanders and Clinton subway moments, which are not food, but also <laughs> just other examples of little New York ephemera. Well, as someone whose uh, Italian-American mother took me – has taken me to the uh, – the same market on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx that John Kasich toured last week and, and stopped at the deli and, and, and um, having walked through there and, and, and enjoyed the food there. Uh, that was certainly my favorite moment. And I do judge people both. And, and John Kasich was guilty of this as well, but, but Donald Trump in the past who, uh, who eat their, at least their, their New York pizza, um, their, their standard slice of pizza. You know, if we're talking, your Neapolitan pizzas or your Chicago deep dish pizza, I can understand the fork and knife, but I can't really forgive the fork and knife for a just a slice of, of what we would cons- what what some would call New York style pizza, but I would just call pizza. Right. Was there which who was the person that ordered a pastrami sandwich like all wrong? Like, one of them ordered. Yeah, it was like he ordered it on white bread with mayonnaise, and it was like, what is wrong with you? Or John Kerry John in Kerry 2004 ordering his cheesesteak with uh, Swiss cheese. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like I'm not uh, I'm not a New Yorker, and I even know that that's wrong. Just it need, sounds offensively disgusting. Should have someone on your advance team if you're a presidential candidate who's from wherever you're going, so that they know and can tell you: don't order your cheesesteak with with Swiss cheese if you're in Philadelphia. Don't eat your pizza with a fork and knife if you're in New York. Right. Uh, you need to have somebody who can who can help you out with these. Put right. the cheese on the cheesesteak. Suck it up. That's right. the way you eat it. Right. Someone who's <laughs> crammed like Guy Fieri <laughs> like for the last two days before your pit stop. Margie, don't give Donald Trump any ideas or you know <laughs> it's going to be Guy Fieri for like head of the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i think he would be as far as i'm concerned as loathsome as trump <laughs> um well thank you so much Stephen. what tell us one last thing like what are your what are you working on now what are sort of things should we be looking for in terms of the next couple weeks in terms of your polling data and and what you're looking at one of the, mo- the most two most fascinating things for me i'll, I'll give you one on each side uh, on the Democratic side is the extent to which Bernie Sanders has caught up with Hillary Clinton uh, in national polls right now. And uh, right. even as he's likely to 
lose New York and some of your listeners, he, if he comes back and wins New York and some of your listeners listen to this after the primary, they'll, they, they can call me an idiot and that's fine. Uh, he looks likely to lose New York at this point. Um, right. And which will probably sort of cut off his path to eclipsing Hillary Clinton among pledged delegates and really make it basically it's already virtually impossible. And that would basically close that door. But what if we get to a point after California and let's say Sanders continues to to tick up and he comes back and wins California and he is, say, four or five points up in national polls in June, just as Hillary Clinton has won more pledged delegates and basically won the nomination. Uh, just the awkward spot that puts Democrats in. Similarly, the awkward spot Republicans will be in uh, as we get towards, uh, barreling towards, cl- closer towards a contested convention. Uh, Donald Trump seems unlikely, though he has a, a, a viable path to earning enough delegates on the first ballot to clinch the nomination, but it's probably, it's it's an unlikelihood at this point, even, even if only slightly over 50%. Uh, but, where we're at a point now, and I know Kristen has talked about this, where Republican voters, you know, Donald Trump is complaining that the game is rigged, and to some extent, Republican voters think he has a little bit of a point. When you ask uh, Republicans in national polls or in state polls or on the Wisconsin exit poll, both of you ask it with Trump specifically or in a theoretical, if nobody gets to the majority, should the nomination go to the candidate who has the most votes and the most delegates, or should it go to somebody else? Or should it go to one of the other candidates in the race, or just someone else entirely? Uh, and most voters think it should go to the candidate with the most votes and the most delegates, including yeah. in the Wisconsin exit poll, it was roughly 40% of Cruz's voters uh, said that the candidate, now they didn't ask about Trump specifically. Some of the polls are asking about if Donald Trump doesn't make it to the delegate number, but he has the most votes and the most delegates, should he get the nomination? That you tend to find a little bit less support for that than than in the theoretical construct. But what do Republicans do? How do they uh, explain to their voters uh, and and the voters that they would need to have any chance in a general election that this is a fair process, that this is the right thing to do, um, you know, without alienating either all of the Trump voters or even some other voters who, who may not su- support Trump right now, but uh, think that that's not really a fair process. Look, it's going to require uh, a lot of political will to overcome. We're already seeing a preview from Donald Trump this week uh, of how he's going to play this kind of contested convention card with what he's talking about in Colorado. It's going to require a lot of political will to uh, choose someone else if he has the most delegates, which seems almost certain. Uh, How do they handle... How does public opinion move on that as they make the case that the right thing to do in that circumstance is to give the nomination to someone else? Uh, That's something that's going to be really interesting to me moving forward. I feel like it's going to be fascinating to watch people's attitudes change if the fact that this is all going to be televised will be different. Um, Because this is, I mean, the convention, it's not going to be some smoke-filled room that decides this, this will actually be stuff going down on the floor of the convention hall where people are having to cast their votes in a roll call. Um, that's what I'm, I'm wondering to what extent that will either help or hurt the case that this, it would be totally fair for it not to be Donald Trump. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate you coming on. That was really interesting. And uh, where can people find you and, and keep up with what you're doing? So politico.com and on Twitter, uh, politico underscore Steve. And 
Yeah, no, we've got certainly no shortage of uh, of great stuff going on right now as, as we head. Uh, we're only um, three months away from these conventions, and there's so much to happen uh, in the interim. Only. God, it seems I don't know, it's both far away and around the corner. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate it. That was, you got it. That was great. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. I had a lot of fun.